0: Today on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, we steal from the rich and give to the poor.
1: We will resist the evil sheriff of Nottingham until the return of good King Richard.
0: Long live the king!
1: Long live the king!
0: Join us as we wag another tail
1: with Wishbone on the Trail. Come on, Wishbone! What's the story?
0: Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast.
1: Paul here. This episode is dedicated to our newest patron, Spectre. Your support means everything to us and our ability to grow. We can't thank you enough.
0: And this is Matt. You can also check out my posts about Wishbone, which is the topic for this week's episode. I recently found a treasure trove of Wishbone merchandise online that I am eager to share with all of our patrons.
1: And be sure to check out the story behind my murder mystery date night with the wife. We hope you enjoy our episode of Wishbone.
0: I'm very excited to return to one of my favorite shows of childhood, probably ever, which is called Wishbone.
1: Shake leg now, Wishbone. Let's wag tail. Out with Wishbone on the trail.
0: Now, if you're not familiar with Wishbone, it was a children's show that attempted to teach classic literature to kids. And they did it through the use of a very cute Jack Russell Terrier. The basic format of a Wishbone episode was that the dog would actually act out these classic stories. There would be costumes, and the dog was trained, and he would act out these different parts of famous characters. Like Robin Hood, for example, who we will be seeing today. There was a voiceover, a human voiceover, that was provided by Larry Brantley. So he was voiced in these parts about the uh, classic stories. But then there was also a story that was happening in the present day with Wishbone and his family. And in these stories, even though the dog was still voiced, it's treated as his thoughts. The people cannot hear him because these are meant to be realistic Everyday types of situations. And what's really brilliant about it is that they would actually tie together the classic story with some sort of situation happening in real life so that kids could understand how the stories related to their actual daily existence. Uh, it was a brilliant concept, and I still think that it is one of the best children's shows that's ever been made. This particular episode is based off of the Robin Hood story, so we'll be getting some good action a little bit later on. Just to set the stage, if you were watching this episode when it aired, imagine yourself on November the 8th, 1995. This is the first season, episode 24 of Wishbone, and we are going to be treated to not only the tale of Robin Hood, but also another tale about taking from the rich and giving to the poor, based around Wishbone's owner, Joe, at his school. Do you have any memories
1: of this from back in the day, or was this your first time watching? I don't specifically remember this episode, but it seems like one, you know, going back, there's one thing I did notice watching it where I got a hit of nostalgia we'll talk about later. So it seems like I probably do remember it to an extent. Again, if I had watched Wishbone, though, it would have been PBS as a kid. So it's not something that would be fresh in my mind whatsoever. I do have an appreciation here. Um, we had covered Wishbone before with the Edutainment episode covering Rip Van Winkle, and I will say that covering Robin Hood definitely is. It's a more popular theme for me. Something that I connect with a lot more. I've, I pretty much watch any Robin Hood movie that comes out. You know, obviously of the Robin Hood on Disney, that's probably the most prominent one for me that I remember. But I've even seen the 2010 film with Russell Crowe. And the one most recent one in 2018 with Taron Egerton, none of them really, uh, none of the newer ones really connect with the magic of the Disney ones. That's the one, let me say the adaptation on film that it probably most connect with. And I do feel like Wishbone here does a pretty good job of it as well. So that's, that's my experience at least with Robin Hood and Wishbone does a great job adapting it in ways that some of these other movies maybe didn't do as good a job of.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I haven't, really been a fan of the recent films because they take strange creative turns that don't really match well with the original story or source material in my opinion. I love the Disney one though. I think that that is probably an underrated Disney classic because you don't really hear about it as much. It's not really from... You know, the 90s, it's not from that sort of golden age or the renaissance of Disney, they call it, that happened when we were growing up. It's a little bit older, and I think it's overlooked. But yes, this one I do have memories of uh, when I was growing up. This is probably one of the most memorable episodes for me. Part of it is because it's Robin Hood, but another part is actually because of the real life story. I really like how it's centered around the school, the cafeteria, the food bank, lots of these different locations that are common just to everyday sorts of life, and I think that that's always a really good way to connect the classic literature for kids that are watching the show. To put on this episode, they required a good bit of talent, because the Robin Hood portion is involving a number of actors, you know, we have Matthew Tompkins playing Little John, we have Sean Hennigan playing the Sheriff, we have Gene Simpson as Maid Marian, and Joe Nemers as King Richard. And I will say that all of these major characters had really big careers afterwards, maybe not huge flashy careers, but they have lots of consistent work. Some of them doing voiceover work. The woman who played Maid Marian was in an episode of Boston Legal. The guy who played King Richard was in Breaking Bad for a couple of episodes. Now, those are just the players that are in the Robin Hood portion. And I should also note that they have all appeared in multiple episodes of Wishbone. Minimum of 10. As many as 24 for some of them. So, they were consistent members of the cast. As for the main characters in real life, I already mentioned Wishbone, voiced by Larry Brantley. We have Jordan Wall playing Joe, Wishbone's owner, who I would say is maybe, you know, maybe like late middle school age, maybe early high school as he gets later into the series. His two best friends, Sam and David. Sam is played by Christy Abbott and David by Adam Springfield. And then we have Joe's mom played by Mary Chris Wall. Her name is Ellen in the show, Ellen Talbot. And the last person to mention is their wacky neighbor Wanda, who is played by Angie Hughes. So, pretty nice cast there. I was really impressed with some of their credits.
1: And honestly doesn't surprise me just by That's one of the things that stands out in this episode is The amount of work that went into the set design, the costuming, etc. here, it really could draw out some pretty good actors to say, oh yeah, let's continue on the series because, I mean, they basically create a little town in this kingdom, which is pretty awesome. They have legit armor, weapons, different costuming, they do different sets. So you have the actual city, you have things in the forest, which really connect as well. So they do such a good job bringing out that fantasy. And that was similar in Rip Van Winkle as well. So I feel like if you're an adult actor here, you're kind of feeling like you can trust that they're not going to lead you out with some kind of sloppy mess that you're just like embarrassed about 10 years later because you wanted a cheap paycheck or whatever. It seems like everything they did there, they put a lot of love and care and work into it. So it aged incredibly well.
0: I think I know the answer to this question, but you do have a bit of an acting resume from the past. Would you feel comfortable joining in with the Wishbone cast?
1: Absolutely. Without reservation, uh, it looks like they're have a lot of fun. But this, I mean, especially something like this, I always loved. I do have some stuff I want to talk about later in the episode to harken back to my previous acting experience. But, yeah, this is theater 101 here. It seems like they were just having a lot of fun. It's it's just really good costume, really good set. And again, you're, you're doing a kid's show, so I'm sure some of them probably enjoyed the source material and that it was going to be on PBS and helping kids learn about different themes and whatnot related to these brilliant works of literature.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned that it was a PBS show because that was pretty important. You know, lots of educational programming there. A little bit about the actual source, Robin Hood itself. This is one of those books that uh, doesn't really have a particular author. It was sort of a series of folk tales that grew up over the years. I found that the oldest references to Robin Hood go back to the 1370s in England. So this is sort of along the lines of something like King Arthur, where there's not like one author that's really known as the specific person who wrote it. It's sort of a story that evolved over the centuries. So pretty fascinating stuff here.
1: Yeah, and believe it or not, in uh, as English majors, you're able to take a course in Arthurian literature. So you got to learn how this character came to be from just, it's like you said, a bunch of different separate sources. But really, it's hard to identify where it came about, whether or not this person was based on anything in history, or if it was just a myth that kind of got set in certain works. And then Expounded upon later on. It's very interesting to kind of study the evolution of King Arthur. And like you said, if that's what Robin Hood's like, it's something similar where it just kind of develops over time and grows as opposed to something set in stone by one single author that you know exactly where it came from.
0: Yeah, to me, that's always really fascinating to think how that evolved over time. But really, you know, Robin Hood, people have suggested that he's based off of some uh, real life noble named Robin of Locksley, but again, that's sort of open to interpretation. Did the Did the history get written because of the story to kind of solidify it and give it a foundation? or was this a real person? It's very sketchy historically, so still produce an amazing story. And like you said, the sets are fantastic. Pretty impressive work for you know for a PBS show, which frankly didn't get
1: a lot of funding. I think they really made the most of what they had there. Well, we discussed this in the edutainment episode, but to kind of bring it back reading from the creator of wishbone that basically they canceled the show, cut the funding just because it wasn't a Teletubbies, right? It just wasn't a show like Teletubbies that I guess they felt was going to connect with kids' attention spans more. And who's to say they're wrong? Cause it's like, you look at kids entertainment now, I mean, for them to sit down and watch these longer shows with deeper meaning a behind the scenes of choreography or directing or cinematography. Do they have the attention spans for that? I know my daughter is excited to actually kind of dig into wishbone pun intended there, um, <laughs> hearing about what like what the show is about, but.
0: Whoa, I didn't know about that. That might be the thing that has made me the happiest today that I have just heard. That is amazing. I'm glad that your daughter has the appreciation for something more than a little 32nd video.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we don't let her watch those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Thankfully she's not on the TikToks, you know, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's definitely, you know, I told her about, it. I was like, yeah, you know, she's like, what's the show about? I was like, well, it's about a dog who kind of <laughs> recreates different stories from old literature. And, but he does it in modern day. And there's like a connection with some human element in modern day times. And I was trying to explain it to her. Cause it's kind of a little bit odd mm. um, to have a, have a dog playing certain characters. and like, Understanding how people can talk to a dog and whatnot. I guess we kind of grew up with like Air Bud and whatnot, so it's like more commonplace (laughs) for us to see this uh, anthropomorphism. Uh,
0: It works surprisingly well, like really because of the voiceover. Because the guy doing Wishbone's voice fills in that sort of awkwardness of the. For the actor, it was probably difficult because they're delivering their lines to the dog, not hearing anything back. But when we hear it. have the benefit of that voiceover actor so it really kind of
1: seems more natural yeah absolutely they do a great job where it's regular and you can kind of picture what they're seeing you know they're not maybe they're not seeing the dog they're seeing this character and but they always dress him up nicely you know they dress him up in a nice costume piece so there's not a whole lot of imagination to try to figure out what he is you know they have him in, in the robin hood outfit they have him in a peasant outfit, farmer outfit. So they kind of dress him up in different things to fit what they're going for. And that's really a huge focal point is being able to costume this dog to fit what you want. Cause obviously he's not a real person being able to live in that scenario. You can't really use makeup to dirty him up the way that you would a, a person. So the costumes very important, but again, they crush it.
0: Yeah. It's fantastic. And you're right about the costumes. Uh, Multiple costumes per episode. He played the main character of pretty much every story. You know, Dr. Frankenstein, Romeo, uh, you know, whoever you can imagine, really. We're going to go ahead and get into the episode here. We're going to narrate as we have been. So I will be taking the helm here today and taking us through scene by scene. And then we'll have some reactions and discussion. So the first scene is a real life scene we have wishbone and joe they are outside of the school uh, near the cafeteria and also near kind of like a dumpster area that is outside of the cafeteria wishbone has smelled some food
1: over here joe i've got a lead on some leftovers
0: and he's running over by the dumpsters and All of a sudden, this big bag of food is dropped down right in front of him, and he kind of puts his paw on top of it, and he says,
1: I hereby claim this bag in the name of me."
0: But pretty quickly, his owner kind of shoes him away from the food, and we find out that the woman who just dropped down this bag of food is named Ellie. Ellie is a lunch lady at the school. She is roughly middle-aged or even a bit older, perhaps, and she says that Wishbone is cute. Wishbone himself tells us that he's dashingly handsome. Ellie then tells Joe that she is actually stealing the food. What she means by that is that she is taking it from the school to the food bank at a homeless shelter.
1: But I gotta be sneaky about it because it's against the rules.
0: That someone named Mr. Bison, who is a sort of administrator at the school, has set regarding food donations. And Ellie tells us that the food will be thrown out every week, even if it's still good for people to eat. So Joe gets really upset when he hears this, and he says, well, that's just going to waste. Let me help you. And so he agrees to help Ellie take the food. After this, we're going to get a cut to Robin Hood, the the story. So from this first scene, we get introduced to this lunch lady, Ellie. This is the only episode that she's in. She's specific to this particular one. And we also hear about this guy named Mr. Bison, but we don't actually meet him just yet. My first reaction of this is, I really love that Joe immediately decides that he wants to help out. That's some pretty serious moral character that we see from him here. And we also see that Ellie herself is willing to go against the school policy because she thinks it's for the greater good. What was your take on their willingness to violate the school policy here?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of hard when you're dealing with this idea of the morality of following the rules and the morality of of doing what's objectively good. If the rules kind of conflate with that bad against it a little bit, it's hard because my whole life I've been a rule follower. Like I literally just don't break the rules because I don't want detention and you, you want to have a clean record and whatever you're doing. And I've pretty much taken that, you know, I don't want tickets. I don't want to be put in jail. I'm a very big rule follower, even with my parents. I was a good boy growing up. Then as you get older, you kind of realize that the people that make the rules, they're not always good people, right? They're not always, they don't always have the best of intentions. As I get older, I'm starting to see more and more that maybe certain rules shouldn't be followed. It's always interesting to kind of, go through that dynamic of what do you do when there's a rule in place and you want to follow it, but you know that it kind of flies against your conscience or it's it's something that's flagrantly bad. And I don't know, it's, you know, I am a pushover when it comes to things, but I'm kind of warming up to the idea of so maybe some rules need to be defied. And basically, I mean, my rule of thumb is it would have to be a law or a rule that is like just objectively unjust in every way, shape and form, just something that it's not something that you can defend. And then at that point, you can then consider breaking the law in order to do the greater good. But especially in terms of like more minor things or things of preference that you may just disagree with, I think you always follow the rule, even if you don't agree with it. Even if you think it's bad or X, Y, or Z, unless it's like flagrantly bad, you should still follow the preference of your employer or Your spouse or your parents or your whomever. Because if it's not that terribly unjust, then I think there is that deference that goes to that person in a position of power, entrusting you. Like if you're working for an employer, they're trusting you to follow the law. Like they're trusting Ellie to follow the law. They're paying your money to follow the law. And she should, unless it's clearly unjust. And here it's not even just an unjust law, it's also the fact that the person doing it really doesn't have the authority to be doing it in the first place. Like, it's not the principal, it's the substitute coming in for a period while the principal's gone, so he really doesn't even have the authority to be issuing these things. But, of course, that's going to play out really well. Like, why he's in that position, it's going to be a very good comparison with Robin Hood.
0: Definitely a good comparison. That's one of the things that really strikes me about this episode, is that they did a really good job of writing a real-life, situation that mirrors the story. They have characters that kind of stand in for all of the main characters in the story, which is really fascinating how they pulled that off. I think it was pretty impressive writing. As far as the role following, I definitely agree with you regarding when I was a kid uh, 100%. I was a big-time role follower. I think today, to an extent, I am, but it just sort of depends on... How serious is it when it comes down to something that's really important? Do you break those rules? I mean, you know, just for example, I mean, you know, uh, I was involved in a couple of uh, strikes which are totally against what the employer would want. Right. But you do it because of different reasons, whether it's because of fair compensation, health care whatever it is. So to me, that's a justified action. Here, one thing that's fascinating is that there is a way that this could be done within the the rules. But what we will find out is that this Mr. Bison here is not interested in setting it up so that it can be done. So there is a way to solve this problem, but he refuses to follow through with that. So we'll get more about that a little bit later.
1: Yeah, so I'll save my comments on that for when we end up talking about it. Watching this first scene, there's still a little bit of me that kind of like was hanging on, trying to figure out. Again, no one wants to like this guy, but me trying to kind of figure out maybe some of his mentality. And at least at this time, as an attorney, I think of these things. Maybe there's like food contamination issues. Maybe there's liability for the school if someone gets food poisoning at one of these shelters. So I'm kind of thinking along those veins that, yeah, maybe he seems like a bad guy, but maybe he has a reason for this law that we'll learn about. So maybe we will learn the opposite. I also wanted to mention like, why do places do this? Like, this is a very common thing where restaurants throw away food. My brother had a friend, his best friend, who worked at a company. And they would do this. So he would leave with tons of food and he would just bring it to us, just bags and bags of food that were just going to be thrown away. And it just seems like there has to be a more efficient way of doing it. I know there's, I've heard of a company that basically will arrange with certain companies to like pick up the food, preserve it, and then either resell it or donate it. But why do companies do this where it's such a hard line where it's almost like, especially bread places, things like that, where basically they make a certain amount per day and then it's done. They have to toss it, they have to pitch it, and there's no mechanism by which that could go to right to a homeless shelter. And obviously you don't want them to have spoiled food, but eat it right away, right? I mean, it's like, why is this such a common thing where restaurants are just tossing away food, grocery stores tossing away beef? It just seems like there's gotta be a better way to harness that excess.
0: Yeah, so that, that's something that I've noticed too. You know, working at a school, I mean, I don't work in the, uh, you know, I'm a teacher, I don't work in the cafeteria, but I, I do know that there is a pretty hefty amount of food waste that goes in and out of that place, and I feel like it's just sort of a symptom of maybe our society just, like, not caring that much about people that need things. I feel like we could probably set up these sorts of mechanisms in which things would automatically be delivered or taken to these sorts of locations like shelters, soup kitchens, food pantries and whatnot. But it's like we lack the infrastructure to make that happen easily. I'm sure like a lot of what you said it has to do with regulations and whatnot, but I imagine that if programs were set up properly, there would be a way to overcome that. I mean I find it very hard to believe that there's not a way that you could take food from a restaurant, from a grocery store, from a school, and get it to a place where it would be useful. So maybe we have a lot of people like Mr. Bison who are just not
1: interested in it. Kind of related to that discussion about the perishable nature of what we're dealing with, the contaminants. I try to kind of figure out like what was in the actual food bags. Like Wishbone does go up to them and he enjoys it. But I couldn't really tell. It kind of just looked like a bunch of, like, bread. So I'm also kind of thinking maybe from a prop manager standpoint of, like, what kind of food they had in there. But it it seemed like just, like, bread is what they filled it up with. And I couldn't really determine what was being thrown away at all. I don't know if you had any insight into that.
0: You know, I didn't really see much in the bag. I, I think I noticed the bread. I could have sworn that I saw some of those sort of like styrofoam to-go containers that were in there as well, but you can't see inside of them, of course, so I, I yeah, I, I'm not sure what all's meant to be in there. Later on, they do take the stuff, spoiler, they do take it to the food bank, but again, we don't really get a good look at it. So, yeah, the props, I kind of wonder what's in there. It could be anything, and maybe only a small amount of it is real food to kind of get Wishbone to react to it a little bit. I don't know if all of it is actually food, so it's, it's a, yeah, I don't know.
1: I did like how they started with the human scenario because stuff like I claim this food for me and obviously, you know, the substitute principle coming in similar to the sheriff coming in for the King. It's kind of cool. Then you can see this first, have no idea what's going on. But then when you see the actual retelling of the story in Robin Hood, it connects with the original story. So it's like, it's kind of good writing to me to, to lead off with this. So it makes perfect sense. I preferred it this way, as opposed to leading off with the story first. What did you think?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, 100%. I think that by introducing the real life situation, it kind of grounds the viewer That's how they always, I think, open Wishbone, is with him in his regular life. And then something happens that reminds him of a story. And then it will flash back in Wishbone's mind as he's sort of thinking about the story. And that's sort of how I imagine it, is that when we see Wishbone acting in these scenes, the way I think of it is it's not just a totally separate cutaway of like, okay, here's the real life. Here's the book. I think of it as here is wishbone remembering and imagining himself as the hero in the story, because it's always connected to something that just happened to him or that he's seen happen.
1: Yeah. And that's a good way to reiterate the point of the show, which is to connect the literature to something in real life. It's like wishbone's able to like actually remember specific things from literature that happened in real life and make that connection. So that's kind of cool. And of course he's read all these books. So he's obviously very well learned in, in these different tales.
0: He's highly learned. uh, And it's funny, you know, we get these crackers for other cookies really from Ikea and they're like shaped different letters. They're basically like, you know, alphabet cookies every now and then we give our dog some of them as a treat. And we always joke that he's learning how to read by eating the letters like whenever he eats a letter a now he understands what that letter is so i imagine maybe that's how wishbone gets his knowledge who knows now we enter into the world of robin hood breaking the rules for a good cause just like the legendary robin hood champion of the underdog The legends of Robin
1: Hood started in England during the Middle Ages.
0: Wishbone tells us that Robin Hood's target is injustice, and that he is a noble who turned outlaw in order to help the poor and the oppressed. He also mentions that he lived in Sherwood Forest with a band of freemen, who of course are known as the Merry Men. The last bit of background is that the King of England, King Richard, has been held for ransom in foreign lands on his way back from the Crusades, and that in his absence, the fat cats, probably a little shot at cats there from Wishbone, have taken over. So this gives us all the information we need. We know that Robin Hood is an outlaw who is trying to help the poor because the king is captured, and that these fat cats, these greedy unscrupulous nobles and other powerful people have taken control of the country in his absence. The first action that we see is that Robin, Wishbone, stops a carriage with a wealthy noble riding in it, and his name is Lord Piggleby. Robin asks, really demands, for a toll for him to pass through the forest, And the lord tries to tell his men to kill robin so that he can be on his way we have no time for such foolishness kill him but before the men can move an arrow comes out of nowhere and pins the noble's clothes to the carriage and we see wishbone with his paw on top of the bow like he had just shot the bow and arrow that had pinned the noble to the carriage Robin says that if the noble is honest with him, that he will also be fair with him, but he decides to lie. We are but a few poor pilgrims making our way towards York. He throws a little purse of money at Robin's feet and claims that this is all the money that they have. Robin thinks for a minute and says that, Well, if you are a poor pilgrim, I'll
1: double your money. But if you're lying, you lose everything.
0: And then he quickly asks the biggest and strongest of the Merry Men, Little John, to go and search the carriage. Pretty much immediately, Little John finds a big chest filled with money underneath of the seat. So we have figured out pretty quickly here that this Lord Piggleby is just trying to lie his way out of the situation. He still continues to lie, and he says, I've never seen that before. It must have accidentally been left there by the people who had the carriage before us. I just rented it this morning, truly. Robin says, well, if it's not yours, then we will make sure that it gets to its rightful owner, and he confiscates the chest. The carriage then starts moving, with the nobleman still attached to it, and as he is walking backwards, trying to keep up with the carriage that is now rolling away, He says that he will tell the sheriff of Nottingham what happened and that he will get Robin for this. Robin has a final kind of uh, quip here where he says,
1: When did they start decorating carriages with fat men?
0: And Little John says that it must be a new fashion. Robin then directs Little John to send one-third of the money to pay for the king's ransom.
1: Yes, your Robinness.
0: the sooner he can pay his ransom, the sooner he can return to England to set things right. More to go to the poor people in each man's village in his group of merry men, and then the last bit of the money to go to the poor of Nottingham. This is where we then cut back to real life.
1: Yeah, Lord Pickleby here. Not very good. At pretending to be a peasant. He's got this lavish carriage. He literally introduces himself as Lord Piggleby. Probably not a good idea to introduce yourself as Lord. If you're trying to then lie that you're poor. But he thinks that title is actually going to bring him renown. And he's going to just pass no problem. Maybe even get some money for himself. So he just leads off. And he has his battalion with him, too. One of his guards with the long, lavish hair, he's, like, maybe 12. I mean, he's, like, a little kid, but he's got this, like, majestic mustache (laughs) that they they put on him. I mean, he has, like, not a single ounce of hair on his face, but he's got this majestic, curled mustache, which I thought was pretty hilarious.
0: (laughs) And they're just poor pilgrims, of course, heading off with an armed guard to the city of York, right? Because that's how religious pilgrimage works, right? You travel with soldiers whenever you're visiting a church or a holy site. So definitely not the best uh, impersonator here. I really like the humor here. You mentioned the ridiculous mustache and everything. Robin has some good lines, Little John as well. The whole thing is very much played for comedy in that even though Robin shoots the arrow at him, there's never any real uh, serious violence or danger here you know it's basically they're shaking down this lord and taking the money to give to the poor which is what robin is all about
1: and the way you had mentioned about the king being kidnapped and all the lords kind of acting out that was an interesting way to put it because i had only really thought about the sheriff and how he was acting out but here's this lord piggleby and that's probably how they all did you know it's like the the teacher's gone the boss is out and and everyone kind of goes crazy it would just be chaos because they could do and and be however they wanted to be. And who knows, you know, maybe Piggleby was part of the kidnapping. Maybe he knew about it and felt pretty confident that the King would never get out and and he would never have to face any consequences from that. Because again, the first thing he says is I'm going to tell the sheriff. So it's like, he kind of, it seems like he's, this could be a big plot from the sheriff to just, gain power and and be in a position of authority. And again, I'm not, my mind is somewhat vague on the story of Robin Hood and why the kidnapping had taken place, but wouldn't surprise me if the sheriff definitely had a huge hand in that.
0: So the historical circumstance here real quick is that King Richard really did go on crusade and he really did go fight in the Middle East and tried to capture Jerusalem for the crusaders. He didn't quite succeed at that. And then, when he was on his way home, he was imprisoned in a foreign country. Uh, I can't remember exactly which one at the moment, but he was basically held for ransom because the king of that country was like, Well, I can just capture Richard. And then the country of England will be forced to pay this giant ransom if they ever want their king back again. And so, one of the other characters who's not in this episode, but you often hear in Robin Hood stories is Prince John, who is. Richard's younger brother who takes over in his absence, and he's famously a horrible king who's very greedy and very much trying to take over his brother's position and everything. And so uh, this idea of everyone running wild in his absence isn't just from the story, this did actually happen historically, that he was captured and needed to be ransomed. So as far as we know about Robin of Loxley, that's more up in the air, but the basic circumstances are based on some amount of reality here. So we return to real life, and as Joe and Ellie are just finishing loading up the car with the food, this man named Mr. Bison comes outside and he catches them.
1: This will feed a lot of people. It most
0: certainly will not. Joe questions him as to why. They can't take the food it's going to be wasted anyway and mr bison says you have no idea how much paperwork is involved for me you need special supervision to transmit non-canned foodstuffs from one organization to another it's all very complicated you have to set up a special program joe questions him and says well why don't we just set up the program And Bison says,
1: No time. That's my decision.
0: Joe then comes back with, well, if the principal was here, Principal Leonard, then she always talks about the importance of volunteering and donating, and I'm sure that she would let us take the food. But Bison says that he is in charge now because Principal Leonard was delayed at an educational conference, and then he orders them to throw the food in the dumpster. When they're ordered to do this, Ellie starts to kind of talk negatively about Bison under her breath a little bit. Why that
1: pencil pushing, food wasting, such and such.
0: And he walks back outside again and asks if he has to supervise this too. And Wishbone says, oh, you want something to supervise? Try this. And then he darts into the kitchen, into the cafeteria, and Bison runs after him. So while Wishbone's causing this distraction, Ellie and Joe pack up the car and they decide that they're going to take it to the food bank. Then they arrive at the bank and working there is Wanda, who is Joe's neighbor. She is this sort of wacky character that lives next door to them. She loves pink flamingos and is just generally sort of a strange sort of character. But she's working at uh, the food bank. And she says that in order to take the food that they need to do paperwork, they have to sign a release. Joe and Ellie try to make it anonymous, but Wanda says that
1: I think we have to know where the food came from or we can't accept it. Who wants to sign the release?
0: So Ellie is about to sign her name to this release, but Joe snatches it away and says that he'll sign. And then he does.
1: Yeah, so uh Mr. Bison here kind of removes all doubt about his intentions. <laughs> it's not about preserving people from illness or anything like that or liability. He's just being uh a control freak, be kind of being a jerk. Again, Ali here being insubordinate to him, is that even true? I don't know what the principle cast down in terms of the role he kind of is like an Umbridge type character to harken back to harry oh, potter perfect here,
0: yeah yeah definitely
1: where it's like at least she had some semblance of authority here because at least it was appointed by the ministry but here it's like i don't even know if this guy was appointed you know it's it's hard to even know if she's being insubordinate and the food going to wanda again i wanted to know a little bit what the food was just so i'd know but if it's like a can of ravioli you don't really need another a source of that it's like it, to me it didn't really make a whole lot of sense uh, but it was kind of harkening back to just why is there so much paperwork just to do good? Why is it so hard to do good? So I think that kind of hit home that Joe here is just trying to do good and just keeps running into obstacle after obstacle. And like, why is that the focus as opposed to getting people the food?
0: That's really what we talked about at the beginning, about like, why are so many places throwing out food, these, you know, all around us? and it's because there's all these uh, obstacles, stumbling blocks, or, like in Bison's case, they just don't want to deal with it. And, you know, Mr. Bison, who I can't help but say in my notes I referred to as M. Bison. If you guys know the game Street Fighter, then you'll understand that reference. And he is sort of the arch nemesis here. He is the boss, if you will, of this battle here to do good. I love the way they utilized Wishbone as the distraction. Like, he decided it on his own, but the fact that he just darts into the cafeteria, and then Bison is like, there's a dog in the cafeteria that's unsanitary. It was, like, just a really good moment. I thought that was beautifully written.
1: I kind of have a follow-up on that moment. And, again, I'm going to throw it to you as to your interpretation. But when Wishbone goes in there, his distraction, I think, kind of mentions it. As he leaves, he says, I left it back at the frozen foods. That's what he says. Did he just like take a huge dump in the cafeteria? Like, <laughs> is that what he did? Like, what did he leave back at the frozen foods? <laughs> I imagined, first of all, I think frozen foods was meant to be, it was far in the back. So that's where bison was. And then the second part is he wasn't contaminating food. Because they would have been in the freezer or froze. It's so like, am I just wrong here that he just took a poop <laughs> on the cafeteria floor? If not, what the, if not, what else did he leave at the frozen foods?
0: If that's what it was, that would be brilliant writing, too. But I, the way I heard that line was that he said he either said he left him or maybe he said he left it. I think what he meant was he lost him at the frozen foods he like escaped from bison he he lured him back in and then ran out and left him back there i think that's sort of what they were implying but your way works just as well and then he has even more problems to deal with so it would have been an even better distraction
1: well yeah at that point he can't chase wishbone he can't chase joe or ally he has a much much bigger <laughs> issue on his hand
0: <laughs> well done yeah well said We head back to the Robin Hood portion. This time Robin is dressed like a sort of poor common peasant. He is selling pots in the village of Nottingham. And he says that in the voiceover that...
1: Robin would sneak into Nottingham to make sure that the money he took from the rich went to the poor.
0: So he was basically putting coins into these pots. And... He was giving them out to the peasants, and then it was sort of a secret way to give them the money. He gives them to this one woman, and then he tells her to have other people come and get pots as well. The sheriff notices uh, all these people that are huddled around this pot merchant here taking his pots, and... He doesn't really realize what's going on. All he thinks is that, hey, this uh, this merchant is having a pretty good day. I could probably get a cut out of this here. And the sheriff basically says that there is a special tax, and he takes some of the coins that Wishbone had in his purse that he had been collecting here. So Robin uses this to kind of lure the sheriff in. He tells him that... I came through show and I started. And I stumbled
1: upon the camp of that rascal Robin Hood. And he stole half my
0: pot. The sheriff says, Oh, you know where Robin's camp is?
1: Uh, tell me, could you find your way back there, peddler? If I capture Robin Hood,
0: i will reward you. So, of course, Robin in disguise here agrees to help the sheriff find Robin's camp. And the next scene that we see, they are at the camp. The sheriff, though, decides that he is not going to share the glory, and he should leave no witnesses. He draws his sword to kill the disguised Robin Hood.
1: Here now, that's no way to treat someone who's just helped you, is it, Little John? Indeed it isn't Robin!
0: But before he can make any more moves, Little John and the men, the Merry Men, rush out of their tents, and they surround the sheriff. At this point, the tables have completely turned, Little John pulls the disguise off of Robin, and now the sheriff is groveling on the ground asking for his life to be spared. Don't kill me, please, please, please. <laughs> oh,
1: I can't stand to see a grown sheriff cry.
0: Robin first asks for the sheriff's purse, and then he says that he has nice clothes and that we could use some nice clothes. So they start taking the clothes, the you know, wealthy, rich clothes off of the sheriff. Uh, He is left in these sort of pink underclothes. He has these sort of like long johns that he's wearing. And they give him some clothes to wear back to town, which end up being a woman's dress. And so in the final part of the scene, we see the sheriff huffing back into the town, dressed up in this woman's elaborate gown. And everyone in the town is laughing at him, including this one guy who is stuck in the stocks. His hands and legs are both like in the stocks and he is just laughing uproariously as the sheriff goes past. So the sheriff gets some comeuppance
1: here. And he deserves it, man. I I just, I can't help but criticize him here. I know he wants the glory. He wants the honor. He wants to catch Robin Hood himself, but I mean, he knows Robin Hood, right? He knows Robin Hood travels with a pack. He just rolls up by himself. Like what's his game plan going to (laughs) be? I guess he just thinks he's OP. He's going to like try to, stop him by himself. I mean, <laughs> this what didn't seem to be very well thought out, especially because at the time when Wishbone, again, Wishbone's a master of disguise. He's able to just be whatever he, he needs to be. The sheriff then goes to kill Wishbone because he's like, I don't want you to get the glory. So even though Wishbone brings him to technically his own camp, he doesn't know that yet. So he goes to kill the one witness. Like He could have done that with the guards too. So I just think this wasn't a very well thought out plan from the sheriff.
0: Not at all. In fact, he specifically says that he wants to go there by himself and that he will have his guards come back later. So I have no idea what he's thinking here. He walks right into it. I think that the guy who plays the sheriff does a really good job here. He's good at this sort of unscrupulous, crafty, totally out-for-himself type of character. He does a nice job of also acting in kind of a comedic buffoonish kind of way to kind of make the sheriff look a little bit ridiculous the whole thing i think works really well it's a good comedic sort of scene
1: I did want to shout out little john here I mean the guy's massive so the sheriff's got this sword and little John just comes out of the tent and is like a, hey gotcha and he just walks right up to him I mean yeah. he still has this sword drawn <laughs> like oh he has this his got like this big staff and he just doesn't care so he's got some like honey badger in him right now where he's just rolling up right next to the sheriff. I mean, the sheriff easily could have just stabbed Don. Little John didn't care. So you kind of just, again, you get the sign of him being massive and just like this fearless fighter. He was completely in control here. Not even ounce of fear approaching this man with the sword.
0: It's very impressive how they have all these different sets because every scene so far has been in a different spot. You know, the beginning scene was in the forest with the carriage. Then we went to the town, which was like a fully you know recreated set of a medieval town and then they also had the scene back at the camp with the tents and everything
1: in terms of the sets one thing that stuck out to me in maybe not a positive way i don't know i always think of robin hood and his merry men as he's like bandits with bows and arrows cuz they're in trees and they kind of just they have the bow and arrow on you <laughs> the swords that these guys had man I mean, they were like, it was like 10 times the size of Excalibur. I mean, these (laughs) things, there are broad swords. These were broader swords. I mean, these (laughs) things are so massive and they're just like holding them in their pants. So when they pull them out, it's like they're almost as big as they are. It just just caught me off guard. I was like, "Ah, why are you wielding these massive swords? There's no way you can swing them.
0: Dude, it's like uh, it's like William Wallace's sword and Braveheart or Final Fantasy Seven like sized sword. You know, <laughs> I love it. But you're right, completely ridiculous.
1: A little bit of something I noticed about the wishbone scene because he does get found out is like a, a little suspicious. There's maybe some logic to that. Not necessarily that wishbone's outfit or disguise didn't work, but he's putting these coins in these pots, and it's like back then. I feel like the pots would have been worth a ton of money. The ability to make a pot and then you have all these poor people purchasing what I feel would be very pretty valuable pots would be extra suspicious. So I don't know if there's a better way for him to do that, but I felt like the pots themselves might've been worth as much, if not more than the coins. Cause they were these very delicate, beautiful looking clay pots. I'd imagine during this time, it would have been pretty hard to create and manufacture them. It just seemed like in terms of the vessels to distribute it to poor people, maybe not the best way of doing it. But that was another thing that I thought about that. Maybe that's why he was a little bit suspicious of it.
0: Oh, I think you're completely right. And I thought about that regarding the pots. The pots themselves would have been worth a decent amount. I think that it could have been intentional because it seems like he wanted to draw the sheriff's attention to trick him to bring him to the camp. So I think that was kind of his plan, but yeah, definitely drawing plenty of attention.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. And, and they got their share of the coins. The only coins he lost were, you know, whatever was left in that purse that he didn't distribute. But again, that would have been purposeful, right? Because he had put the ones he wanted to in the pots. He left those in the bag, presumably. I mean, so you're just this, he, that's next level. I mean, well, that's... and he
0: and he robs them back from the sheriff whenever he's at the camp, right? Because so he the sheriff knew... took the coins, but then Robin takes all of his money when they get to the camp.
1: Because he knew the hubris of the sheriff would be too. I mean, that is. That's... I mean, oh, hubris! Good for, word, man. Yeah, forgive me for doubting you, Wishbone, <laughs> <laughs> or or Robin Hood, I should say. <laughs> I'm it's
0: glad really... you brought up hubris, though. That's a you know classic uh, tragic flaw in literature. You know that flagrant uh, amount of pride that people have that leads them to their downfall. So very, very important idea.
1: Well, we do know that Robin Hood has this massive bounty on his head. So we're not entirely sure what that is, but it's definitely a huge, it's not just the glory of capturing him because he is an outlaw, a vagrant, if you will. But there's a massive bounty just in terms of finances on his head, although we don't know how much that is.
0: So moving back to the real life scene, we have Joe in the cafeteria and this is probably the next day and he is looking for Ellie, but he instead finds Bison and he tells Joe that he, you won't find Ellie here anymore, Joe. And he presents to Joe a receipt and a thank you that came from the food bank. And he shows that the receipt was signed by Joe. And he says that he fired Ellie because she disobeyed him. Joe ends up back outside and he's sitting at a bench in sort of this outdoor, almost like little common area at the school. And he looks really sad. He's sort of clearly depressed about what happened. And his two friends, Sam and David, end up arriving. And they see Joe sitting on the bench. Uh, Wishbone is trying to wag his tail and cheer Joe up, but it doesn't seem to be working. And Joe says, do you know Ellie the lunch lady? And Sam says, sure. She knows about my allergies. And so she always takes the coconut off of my cupcakes for me. And then David says, she always gives me extra pineapple in our fruit cups. So we get this idea that Ellie is a very caring person. She's not just there for her, you know, her work day. She actually gets to know the kids. She understands who has allergies, who likes what food. And so we get to know a little bit more about her character. Joe then briefly explains everything that has happened so far. And David says that.
1: Well, Principal Lennon gets back this afternoon.
0: Joe then says that he will tell the principal that it's all his fault and that he needs to get Ellie's job back. David warns him that he could get suspended if he tries to take the blame. But Joe says that he can't let Bison win because he's wrong. And Sam agrees with him. Joe then stands up on the bench, and he makes a speech to everybody who is out on this outside open area here, all of the kids that are outside, and he tells everyone...
1: Today at lunchtime, you'll all go into the cafeteria, but today, Ellie won't be there. She was fired this morning.
0: Sam adds that...
1: She was always nice to all of us, and you guys know it.
0: And David says that all the food would have just been thrown away. Joe then basically sets up a food strike, a hunger strike, if you will. And he says that he won't eat any lunch today until the principal comes back. Bison comes out and sees Joe making this big speech and he tells him to stop. And he says, Young
1: man, do not toy with me. I dare you to say one more word. Yeah, so it kind of is a little bit of a William Wall situation here of needing to stop him from creating <laughs> this this rebellion or uprising.
0: Yes, Joe is basically William Wallace, or I guess we could say Robin Hood in this case.
1: I feel like, again, I I know Bison's the villain here, but I feel like even the evidence against Ellie is not that strong. I mean, the only evidence he had to justify the termination is Joe's name on a piece of paper. I mean, the story easily could have been Ellie refused to support it, said, no, I'm going to throw this away. You throw this in the trash for me, Joe, please. Joe agreed and then went and himself did it. I mean, to me, that's that's really what the evidence shows. So I don't know if Joe should have maybe said something or not accepted it, but it seemed like Bison's not really following logic here. He just has this irrational distaste for Ellie. And I don't know. I thought a little bit about the legal ramifications of this for Ellie. Unfortunately, I don't know that there's that much here. I mean, this isn't like a disability or status type of discrimination. So in terms of like civil rights issues, nothing really props up here. And if this really was a policy of the school to do this, unfortunately, she just might be out of luck here for a wrongful termination case. So I kind of wish Joe had done a little bit more to maybe fight for her here.
0: I think maybe his problem here is that he knows that he won't get justice until the principal comes back. And so he's organizing this sort of protest is the best he can do in the moment but I agree with what you said about the legal ramifications you know she's an employee here maybe if she could prove that they didn't have the grounds because like there's not evidence that she took it to the food bank you know maybe there's something there but I think you're right it might be difficult for her to get her job back if we don't have some help here I really liked how Sam and David showed up and kind of had Joe's back when he's giving his little speech to everybody. To me, you know, we can kind of see, like you mentioned, how the characters all line up with people in the Robin Hood story and the principal waiting for her to come back, it's like she's King Richard, right? Because she's away. And then we have Bison, who is the sheriff, you know, Ellie and Joe are Robin Hood. And I would argue that we have Sam and David as sort of like the merry men. You know, they're there to support Joe, and they kind of have his back. This is sort of a common theme in a lot of the episodes, that Sam and David are kind of like Joe's sidekicks in the stories. They support him. There are some where they have arguments and disagreements. They're on the same page here.
1: Yeah, Sam and David here. So I had mentioned that I had no familiarity with this episode, and that in general, Wishbone episodes are very vague in my mind. But seeing Sam and David just... It was just a huge rush of nostalgia. It was like I was watching videos of me as a kid with my friends or something, man. I was just like, I remembered them. I remembered them, what they sounded like, how they acted. It was so refreshing to see that. It was just like a gigantic shot of nostalgia right on my arm. So I was like, yes, I I remember them. They were a big part of my life. Good friends of Joe. And I just love that because that's so much of what this is, is just getting to experience different things of nostalgia, but especially with certain characters like that, just, it was a very warming feeling of just like, I know who these people are. Hey, you know, that's my friend from (laughs) grade school or whatever. Yeah, I, I just, I love seeing them again.
0: Oh no, I'm with you. I definitely feel that. I think that they, in particular, I feel very strong nostalgia with wishbone. And I think it's because it's so real to life. You know, you could easily imagine, oh yeah, I hung out on the playground with Sam and David and Joe. They're just like regular kids. They're not like big uh, superheroes or any sort of, you know, crazy kind of story. It's just like this is a town you could have grown up in. And I feel like it very much brings those nostalgia sorts of fuels very easily. Back in the Robin Hood story, we are now at an archery competition. Maid Marian makes her first appearance, who, of course, in these stories is always Robin Hood's love interest. And Maid Marian is able to see through Robin Hood's disguise. He is, of course, dressed up as a sort of poor, common man who is there for the archery competition. And Marian says to him very quietly,
1: Oh, Robin, can't you see that this is a trap?
0: And Robin says, half of the farmers here are... Very merry men, if you get my meaning. Besides, who could turn down a challenge like this? We are then introduced by the sheriff to Nigel.
1: <coughs> Attention! The time has come for the final round. There are only two contestants remaining. Our
0: own Nigel of the Guard. And the mysterious farmer, uh, Unobtrusio of Nowhere Town. Nigel is able to get pretty close to the bullseye, kind of in that yellow to red range of the target there. And the sheriff basically says, well, it looks like you don't have a chance here. But then Robin is able to shoot and split Nigel's arrow. The sheriff is stunned by this, and he realizes that this must be Robin Hood because of his skill with the bow. He goes to attack him with his sword, But Robin and his men are now forced to retreat back to the forest after a brief fight. Marion, though, in this whole scuffle, is grabbed by the sheriff and basically held hostage. But Little John convinces Robin that he has no choice but to escape and come back to try to get her later on when they have a better opportunity. We go back into the forest. Robin is very sad. He says, If only I'd taken her with us. I should have. If only I knew that she was all right. If I had some kind of sign. And then an arrow suddenly shoots right past Little John's head and pins a message to the tree that Little John was standing next to. It's a note from the sheriff. And he basically says that he wants Robin to give himself up and that he will release Marion. Little John says,
1: Robin, he'll kill you.
0: But then Robin just says that he has a better chance of escaping than Marion does. And he also says, don't try to follow me. And he runs off back to the town. Little John immediately, like five seconds later, orders the Merry Men to follow him. And then we cut back to the real life scene.
1: So this scene, honestly, I got got so many questions about it. It was a scene I didn't quite understand in a lot of different ways. So I kind of want to go through it a little bit. Hopefully maybe you can shed some light on it. The first was with regard to... Wishbone's identity here. So Maid Marian is able to see through the disguise. Presumably they're lovers, right? I guess that kind of makes some sense that maybe there's some aspect of him that she could recognize right away, but we know she can kind of see through the disguise. But then you also had mentioned the sheriff. And so your position in your narration is that the sheriff knew that it was Robin Hood, which makes a lot of sense. When I first saw this, I did not see it like that because he keeps calling him this farmhand. And the reason he goes and takes his sword out to stab the farmhand, you posited, was because he had won, and therefore he had the skill that only Robin Hood could have. I took it as, so in the scene, it's basically Robin wants a tie. He's like, you know, let's have Nigel win too, because he's good. But the sheriff's like, there's got to be a winner, right? There's got to be a winner. And the only way there could not be a winner is if you split the arrow down the middle. And then he does that famous scene that I think they always do in these Robin Hood movies where he splits the arrow so he actually gets a tie. So I kind of saw him as maybe still thinking he was still the farmhand, but just it was insolent of him to basically do that. And it kind of made him look like he was an idiot at the time. So I think it was a little bit of that too. So I'm not entirely sure if he knew without reservation that that was Robin Hood.
0: You could be right. I didn't think of it that way, but you're right. You know, the whole point of it is that Robin decides it's almost actually more skillful of him to create the tie than to win because he could have easily hit the bullseye closer than Nigel, but he decides to split the arrow to kind of prove his point. And yeah, the way I interpreted this was that when the sheriff saw that happen, he was like, who else could split an arrow other than Robin Hood. And so then he's like, let's get him, because he knows that that's who this really is. Definitely before that time, he didn't know who he was. He thought he was a farmhand. He actually calls him Unobtrusio of Nowhere Town, Uh, so he has no clue who he is. But yeah, I would argue that in that moment, uh, he realizes it. But it's very possible that he just... But then when the Merry Men erupt out, he clearly then would know, like at that point.
1: He also has now at least dealt with Robin Hood, right? He's seen him up close. He's seen the Merry Men up close. So how Robin Hood might sound, obviously, you know, the voice actor does a good job. Whoa, I'm no Robin Hood, but thank you, fair lady. Doesn't use the same voice the whole time. He puts on a different accent depending on... What the disguise is, but he has has at least seen the physique of Robin Hood in person now, whereas I'm not sure if he had before then he may have, Robin Hood might have just been an idea, maybe he saw a bounty poster or something, but I don't think he saw him as closely or like little John, like you're gonna know you're gonna notice and remember uh, little John right
0: definitely, <laughs> little John is
1: massive <laughs> <laughs> this massive staff. yes, in terms of this tournament, I just I just couldn't understand it because. They say, yeah, like Lil John's like, listen, it's going to be a trap. Robin Hood knows it's a trap, but he wants to go anyway. He, he goes to compete in this tournament and then he refuses to win the tournament. So he's not obviously not going for winnings or pride or glory. And then obviously the other component of this is Maid Marian, is that Robin Hood has lamentations that he risked Maid Marian. He could have saved her. I mean, why not just take her away like she wasn't in danger until he showed up so I just couldn't understand it seemed like he almost put her in danger by being in the tournament and if she really was in danger of being kidnapped why was she there in the first place she could have just walked away I mean she wasn't restrained at all so I, I couldn't understand his lamentation about her being in danger when it seemed like he was the one who either put her in danger or had a clear way of getting her out of danger
0: i think this is another thing where it's always included in the robin hood story the idea of the archery competition i think that what he's going for i mean he says to her that he can't resist the challenge he says besides who can turn down a challenge like this so he feels secure because he has the merry men there and then i think it's just a part of him that just wants to prove that he's the best and so I think in his mind, he was there for the glory, but he felt like it was more impressive to split the arrow rather than to win. Right. Because it's sort of it's more skillful to be able to do that. So to me, that was kind of the interpretation there. So hubris.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Hubris.
0: (laughs) We're back to hubris again. Well, well said and as far as marion i don't know if it was maybe the way it was staged or whatever but like if you listen to what little john and the guys are kind of saying during the fight scene they kind of make it sound like they're getting overwhelmed like they're over they're outnumbered and they have no choice but to withdraw back to the forest and, and robin wants to go get her but little john basically forces him to retreat marion i'm coming ah. But now your
1: robinliness You'd never even get near her. Come on. That's my best interpretation of it. So he even had hubris in the power of his merry men because when made Marian's like, this is a bad idea. You're going to get overwhelmed by all of these guards with the sheriff. He's like, no, nah, my merry man I have it. <laughs> hubris. And then they have to withdraw because they, they're like, You're, what are you thinking? Like, we're not strong enough to win this.
0: Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. It's just hubris across the board here. So finally back at the school, we see the effects of Joe's hunger strike. All of the kids are going through the line, and they are not accepting any of the food. Bison comes out and says that he called Joe's mom. We can't have students inciting a rebellion. Interesting choice of words. All of the kids keep on walking past the line, they walk out, and Joe's mom arrives. Joe's mom is named Ellen. She's a librarian in the town. And we know from previous episodes that his father has passed away at some point previously before the the show began sometime back in Joe's childhood. So Ellen arrives at the school and Joe says, listen, mom, before you say anything, I need to talk to Principal Leonard. And to Joe's surprise, his mom agrees. And she says,
1: well, yes, Joe, you're standing up for what you believe in. Even if you're in trouble with the school, you're not in trouble with me.
0: And then Wishbone agrees as well in his head as he's thinking about what's going on. But he also says that he wants to know if anyone brought any lunch for him. Unfortunately, no one has any food right now. Bison comes out and he says that Joe is fomenting bad behavior. And Ellen says, And he's been acting the way his father and I always hoped he would. I have to tell you, Mr. Bison, I am very proud of my son. And then Bison says, I can see where he gets his stubbornness. In any case, he has violated my regulations. And then Ellen says, well, according to my regulations, I discuss my son with the principal. Wishbone then tells us that,
1: Whew! Ellen's arrived in the nick of time. You know, every so often, even heroes need help.
0: This is a really great scene because it really ties the story in, I think, really well. I love these lines from Ellen here. I think one of the reasons that I remember this show so much, this particular episode, is because of the part where she says, even if you're in trouble with the school, you're not in trouble with me. That kind of blew my mind as a kid because, again, I was always this rule follower. My parents were always very insistent about, you know, following the rules doing what you were told and the fact that she's willing to support him in doing what he thinks is right. That like just blew my mind. It really stuck with me. Like, honestly, I remembered this line ever since I remembered this scene. So I don't know if you had any strong reactions to the scene or, or what you thought about it. Yeah. The mom here is
1: so clutch. Just mama bear mode. Perfect mother. Just, she kills the scene and i don't know this is always a fear of mine raising kids and you know recently you know we've been homeschooling so we haven't had to run into it but just this idea that you may run into a situation where your values are different from a teacher's or maybe the schools, but this is clearly just reserved to the one teacher, but that teacher has such authority over you. So it's it's such a scary situation when you put your kid into a school, not knowing what kind of teacher you might get. You might get a bison as a teacher who comes in and yeah, maybe, maybe your kid pushed down a bully or something. And there's an issue with that because it's physical violence or whatever, but are you going to sit your kid down and say, Oh, you're so terrible for doing this? I mean, I remember the fifth grade and I I don't want to throw a name out here, but I, someone's the Call quiet, them out, si- man! Call
0: them out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was a, it was a science question, and the question was, you know, what's the bo- what's the name of the body of water that holds the most water in the world? And I spoke out of turn and said oceans, and she immediately stopped class, pulled me out, I got my first detention immediately. She thought I said the curse word. Oh shh. Curse word Whoa. I just answered the question right. But she wrote that I said the curse word now because she just <laughs> misheard me. And I'm like, Mom, I just answered the question. Like it's literally the answer to the question she asked. But that was my blemish on my report card was I got the correct answer. Now maybe me speaking out of turn wasn't appropriate, but it was an open question to the class. And you know, maybe I could have raised my hand, but to be right on something, but then that teacher has that authority to just slam it down and she's not gonna say I misheard him or anything like that. She has the authority. So I just imagine getting a teacher like that causing these types of issues with my kids. And man, that would just send me over. I mean, again, worst, you know, we, a lot of, <laughs> but we know, again, we know people that are teachers that went to college and obviously a lot of them are great, but I know some that if they had authority over my kid would cause concern. Oh, yeah.
0: I can think of a a couple. If we want to call people out, let's call them out right now. (laughs) But like, I agree. (laughs) You know, I see that working in the school all the time. I will say that teachers today are generally way less strict than when we were growing up. But there are still some that would probably pull something like that. You either just take it and let it go, or you try to start a big fight with the principle and try to fight back about it. And that's probably not going to go in your favor. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard. And yeah. And if you're dealing with your kids there, I mean, and sometimes teachers make legitimate mistakes. I mean, you know, they're not trying to drop the hammer, but if they think they heard something and it's something they're supposed to punish, then what do you think they're
1: going to do? So it's like, you're kind of stuck bison he's just misunderstood, you know? He's just, oh, yeah, misunderstood. <laughs> um it also goes the other way, though, with like the because you had mentioned the the lack of strictness. it goes that way, too. Because my daughter had issues with a, basically a, a bully in school that would like take her, her food and take her lunch and take her, her treats. Like if she got a treat for doing something good in school, like the kid would be like, oh, I don't have a treat. Can I have yours? Oh, I don't have – can I take yours? And my daughter's like, well, I want a friend. But she was a, the bully. And my daughter like isn't able to process and understand that. No, she has food. She just wants your food too because she mm-hmm. likes your food. But she couldn't process that. But the school was not strict on it. So I was just like – it's so hard as a parent when you're kind of helpless to – the authority of teachers. And like you said, yeah, sometimes they make mistakes, but there could also just be like a disagreement on how to handle it. And they're trying to teach 20 to 30 kids in a classroom. It's hard to to own in on just the one who maybe it an, has an issue. So, you know, this kind of triggered me into thinking of all those things that thankfully I haven't had to deal with for a while, but man, to get a bison as a teacher, oof, that'd be hard. And like to have that conference, I just, no, no, thank you. I love
0: this final line where Wishbone says that Ellen arrived just in the nick of time and that sometimes even heroes need help because that brings us right into the final
1: Robin Hood scene. did want to pause you here about, you know, you being a teacher. Do you think this hunger strike would have gone over? I mean, do you see all these kids? It's a very touching moment that these kids all agree because they all skip their meal one after the other. And it's kind of a touching moment. Is that something that you think would happen in schools today?
0: I think it could. Um, I think that administrations in schools, or at least in certain schools these days, are a lot more willing to, in good and bad ways, kind of bend to pressure. And so that can be bad in the sense that sometimes... The community or parents demand something that's not actually in the best interest of the kids. But in other cases, it can kind of help counterbalance, like, it can help bring attention to issues that exist within the school. And I think that if someone was fired unjustly and that there was sort of this circumstance of feeding the poor... And if you had a tight-knit enough school, probably if it was a smaller school where the people knew each other very well, I think you could probably pull this off.
1: That's that's a feel-good story. I like to hear that.
0: Yeah, give us some positivity here as we we go into the end of Robin Hood. So when we go back to the story, Marion is tied to a pole uh, in the middle of the town. And the sheriff says, It looks like we may have to hang you after all, lady. Marion calls him a coward, and then Robin arrives to give himself up. Marion tells Robin that he shouldn't have come, but he says, I couldn't leave you here, my love. And then he tells the sheriff to let her go. The sheriff refuses and says, hey, now I can hang both of you. But then the merry men arrive, because of course they followed him, and this pretty awesome battle scene ensues where... We have the Merry Men going up against the guards. The sheriff is sort of crouching and hiding behind a wall while this is going on. We see a lot of choreographed fighting. We see some guards with like baskets and things getting dumped over their head, and they're getting uh, their feet stamped on with like poles and stuff like that. And it's you know it's not like super uh, violent fighting. This is still wishbone, but it's like this nice choreographed battle where there's not like anyone getting like seriously hurt but guys are getting beaten up and it's pretty fun to watch. And as all this is happening, Wishbone gets the sheriff's clothes in his mouth and he's like ripping and tearing at him trying to get him to to come out and fight. And while all this chaos is going on, all of a sudden the king arrives. We seek the outlaw Robin Hood. King Richard rides in through the town and he is looking for Robin Hood. Everybody stops fighting and the sheriff immediately says to the king that he just captured Robin and he was about to hang him. Richard says had you done so I would have hung you myself and the sheriff sort of grabs his neck and kind of scuttles away as he has been told off by the king. The king then gets off of his horse And he says that the payments that Robin has been sending have finally paid his ransom and that he was released from captivity. He then does indicate, though, that Robin is, in fact, an outlaw. And Robin says, Much has happened since you left, sire, and the laws were no longer protecting your subjects. So I did. I do not regret what I have done, sire. And the king says that he agrees and that they are no longer outlaws. And then we cut out from chance of everyone saying and that they are no longer
1: outlaws
0: and then we cut out from chance of everyone saying long live the king
1: so the first thing i wanted to talk about was this choreographed fight you really do get a dichotomy here you get two very separate i'm going to say two separate performances i'll put it that way so you have little john who comes out with this bow staff and the guy must be train like hardcore training this he comes in swinging it over his head doing twirls just magnificent foil to that these <laughs> guards and unfortunately they're in the foreground so like right in front of you i mean they're like stationary just like barely hitting each other's swords it was terrible unfortunately but it reminded me of a personal story in my choreographed world now i actually was trained for three musketeers in theatrical fencing so i'm very familiar with fencing but that was my uh, sophomore year in high school and And then later on, I ended up doing an English project for a film, Beowulf. We were filming Beowulf and we had a director and we were going to do a sword scene. So we did the sword scene. He said, great, cut. We're good to go. I watched this scene in front of the whole class, Matt. Oh my goodness. So the guy that I'm fighting across from me comes in, does like a 360 with the sword and just like spears me perfectly. I have a little bit of a fight back and forth with him prior to that. It's the worst thing I've ever seen. I was literally (laughs) standing still. My feet were not moving and I was leaning into my swings. It was the most awkward thing I've ever seen in my life. I'll never get over it. It scarred me to oh, this Oh, man. And I'm like, director, why did you not have me reshoot that? Why didn't you let me see it? Like, it was such an easy thing to correct. Oh. I think he liked the fact that I was so bad compared to this other guy. But I was like, oh, so embarrassing. <laughs>
0: it makes you feel any better. I've never even done anything like that. So I'd probably be much worse. So you're saying that you are on the level of these guards here and that the guy that you fought is little John basically in this scene.
1: <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah. But I, I, I will take some blame because obviously it was me doing it. I, it would have been nice if there was a director there to say, this doesn't look that good. We're going to reshoot this. And they had a fake choreographer for this. So I'm surprised that got through. But anyway, I noticed that because it, again, it, it really brought me back to my own personal issues here.
0: No, you're not wrong. I guess I was focusing more on Little John. I was just watching him the whole time. Like his so awesome, he's so
1: good. I mean, that thing was like a trunk. It was like yeah. a tree trunk. <laughs> and he's just swinging it over his head, like it's like a I don't even know. Like he's in color guard or something. Like it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it, was ma- it was beautiful and magical. <laughs> the other thing that I had one of these like oh my gosh moments. Like Wishbone continuing to teach to this day. The king goes and says that perhaps you would enjoy aiding the poor inside our law not out. And I was like, are you, that's what outlaw means? It was like this light bulb in my head. I was like, he's outside the law. He is an outlaw yes. for whatever reason. I never thought about that before. <laughs> I was like, man, I'm still learning from wishbone. So, at 35. Good. <laughs> <laughs> this is
0: so good. Dude, that really speaks to the power of wishbone. I mean, that's awesome. Oh, I love that. Yeah, you can still learn stuff from these, especially if you're not an English major and you don't have a familiarity with a lot of these old books. The summaries are pretty good. Like, I mean, they cut out a lot of the details, but they give you the overall plot. Like, if you watched a Wishbone version of a story and then you were to talk to somebody about the story, you would still know the major plot beats. So after we conclude Robin Hood, now we have to wrap up the real-life story. We go back to the school, and the principal has returned, much like King Richard. Everyone is arguing when she gets back, just like how everybody was fighting in the previous scene. But when the principal arrives, everybody stops. Ellie also shows up. She tells Joe that she needs to take responsibility for what happened. And she says that She put in a proposal to start a program, but Bison ignored it. I'm the supervisor. That is my area. This is something we didn't know before. Ellen then speaks up and says that she supports Joe's effort. The principal listens to all of this, and then she says,
1: Well, I've heard enough.
0: Ella, you've been involved in every charity activity this school has undertaken. I'll review your proposal and get right back to you. Can you return to work tomorrow morning? So right away, we have a reversal of Bison's decision here. She then asks Ellen to become the first parent volunteer and invites Joe to also help run the program since he's already involved. As everyone gets ready to go back to lunch, the principal invites Ellen to join them and Principal Leonard also says, Mr. Bison, I need to see you in my office. So we know that he's about to get some disciplinary action here. Finally, she looks down at Wishbone and says, Sorry, Wishbone, you can't go to school. As she walks away, he is in his head, is is yelling after her, saying, No, I,
1: I'm a fourth grader here, really. I, hey, don't let the dog suit fool you. I'm just practicing for the school play. Hey, open up!
0: Mark my words,
1: someday I will eat lunch in school.
0: Now, this is where the episode ends. There is a brief behind the scenes that comes afterwards. I'll talk about that uh, shortly here. I think that this is a really powerful last scene. It's a good job of wrapping up the story just like the Robin Hood story with the parallel to the king and the principal. And again, we have this idea, like you just mentioned, of being outside of the law, now going inside of the law. Because the principal is going to institute this program, Ellie and Joe and Ellen are going to be all involved, but under the correct regulations and paperwork and all
1: of that stuff. Yeah, that's a really good point about why some of the stuff can be opposed if it's that unjust. Because really, oftentimes it's just slash of the pen. And the laws changed. You know, it's it's not like some kind of greater moral value necessarily. It could just be something very easy to reverse. And so sometimes you got to fight for those things if it's important to you. We do not know the discipline that Bison undergoes, but you know who knows? Maybe they continue with the parallels and the, and the comparisons, and maybe maybe this scene is perpendicular with a hanging. You know, we don't know if they leave it up for interpretation. Am I saying that Bison is going to be subject to a public hanging? No. <laughs> but am I saying we know he didn't? No, I'm not saying that either. <laughs> You're right. And I got to say, poor Wishbone here. They left him outside by himself, man. They went into school and he's just like chilling by himself. Like, what is he supposed to do now? He, like, even the mom goes inside. So Wishbone's just chilling outside by himself without a leash. I just like left out to dry. I mean, it would have been nice if they would have given him some food or something.
0: Yeah, I feel bad for him here. Uh, it's uh, played for comedy, but yeah, I feel bad for him. I think he, they should have uh, brought him out nice little doggy bag, if you will. A little little to go. It would have been a nice way to end things. But he is foiled here, despite the fact that he's the one that set up this whole beautiful uh, story and the parallels for us. Uh, but no one else knows that because it's in his head and he can't communicate it. But he does say that he will not give up and that he's going to get in there one of these days. So I like to believe that he found a way
1: Yeah, it would have been easy to do too. They could have done something cool, like putting it in a pot, you know, in the original one, putting food in a pot, could have put it in one of the bags, like one of the coin bags, and then he opens it and gets a treat or something like that, you know, to make it seem like, oh yeah, you know, maybe this was real. Like maybe this did happen and I don't know, could have done some cool stuff with that. And then above all, feed the doggo, you know, let him give, give him something to leave on. But I agree with you. It's just for humor and he gets to maybe have his day in school. You might Maybe say five. that
0: every dog has his day, right? Oof. Oh man, that's a teaser. That's yeah. a teaser. But that was a really good point about if they had brought it out in a pot or a bag, like, and it could have been like a almost like a little twilight zone. Like, oh, is it real? You know, did it was he really Robin Hood? Like that would have been pretty cool, actually. Mm-hmm. So to wrap up, and this is always at the end of Wishbone. They do these little behind the scenes segments. I think it's pretty cool that they do this because they kind of pull back the curtain and show the kids how the show was made. Oftentimes they pick a particular scene and they go into a little bit more detail about how it was done. So in this one, of course, they talk about the big fight scene at the end. They mention that there was choreography. Wishbone says that it's kind of like a dance. Like a dance, it takes a lot of teamwork. No one actually gets hurt. The only way to win this kind of fight is for everyone to do their jobs perfectly. That way, everybody wins. Even us big stars have to practice. So all around, the show is just dropping morals left and right. I mean, we have the moral about volunteering and about doing the right thing and resisting unjust authority. We have the moral of doing good for the poor and the helpless and we have this moral at the end about teamwork and practice that's what i love about these shows so much is that even as an adult like hearing these morals can be nice sometimes to kind of bring you back to like a simpler kind of place where you think about those things that are important and as a kid they help you learn they help you grow they help you figure out how you're supposed to behave and we go off on this all the time, but you don't see this in kid programming today. Nothing remote to this exists. I'm sure you know a lot more about that than I do, because, again, you have two children. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of things that make you wish that you had part of your
1: life back after having to watch them, probably. Yeah, the morals are so strong here. And that's probably why I'm just going to make my kids watch Wishbone, honestly. That's <laughs> Yeah, so much of it is just, you know, slapstick silliness. We try to find some good ones. You know, stuff like Bluey we found that's reasonable, but definitely nothing is good as this because those are just like cartoons. Like there's a lot of production value that goes into something like this. And just even them being aware of, you know, what the choreography could do to a kid, you know, wondering, did the sheriff actually tries slashing out wishbone well you get to see in the after scenes that no it was just acting that was his job was to you know dodge the sword obviously but you see that he clearly was not trying to actually hurt wishbone and then yeah everyone's having fun having a good time. No one was actually angry, so you know, as a kid, you may not have that type of vanity point. If the parents aren't around, it could affect you, and so they're at least being aware of that. But yeah, I mean, just imagine—like, it's a really good way to put it in terms of the choreography. It's—it's a sword fight, so you think obviously, you know, oh, everyone has to win, but in this sword fight, you're trying to actually do the opposite, trying to create art, and everyone needs to do their part, and that's what you have to do. You don't need to do anything individually to shine as a person, but you need to do your role, and if you don't do your role, it ruins the entire scene, and. I mean, just imagine that in real life, if people could do that, you know, instead of worrying about their prowess and their success and their credit, just doing what they're supposed to do because you're trying to live for something bigger than yourself. You're trying to live for the choreographed scene. I mean, that's a great message to live by, and I wish more people would take it to heart.
0: I agree 100 percent, man. Oh, man, I'm I'm almost like tearing up a little bit. These are, these are some like deep, like moral truths here and just remembering of Like, when you're a kid, like, again, that was a really good point about how this also isn't just teaching about teamwork, but it's also teaching about that this is make-believe, and that in case you are a young kid, that you won't be afraid of what you just watched. And that kind of puts me in mind of Mr. Rogers, actually, because he does a lot of stuff on that show where he kind of takes kids and shows them oh, this is how this thing really works. Like, there was an episode where he had the woman that played the Wicked Witch of the West on the show, and he showed her putting on her costume and that she was actually a real person, not a witch, you know? And so this is for older kids than Mr. Rogers, but still, it's nice that they have that awareness. Like you said, especially if the parents aren't around, no one can explain these things to them. So that's another really good kind of level to the whole thing here.
1: Well, it's heavy lifting as a parent, especially if you want to watch like older type movies like PG-13 type movies with your kids. You almost always have to watch behind the scenes just to like take them step by step like this is how they're doing it. And it removes that fear. You know, once they realize, oh, it's makeup and oh, it's a person and oh, it's CGI and oh, it's this and it's really cool. They get to learn how it's made, but it also takes away some of that fear, especially if you're watching things that have the scarier elements to them that completely gets lost they, they absolutely need that
0: yeah that's that's huge i think and um i mean it, we
1: know stuff from i mean we know stuff about you know from nickelodeon and whatnot that people like legitimately scarred from it yeah. and they, never had oh, that, yeah. they never had that person saying this is a cartoon here's the artist they're just like actually having nightmares from it yes
0: yeah it, it just disappoints me that there's not anything like this today but like you said you can make your kids watch it. Uh, it's easy to find Wishbone. And most of the episodes, if not all of them, have been uploaded to YouTube. So, I mean, you could just simply search for Wishbone on YouTube and you'll come up with tons of, of episodes that you can just watch right there. So, if you have a kid who's a big fan of using their iPad to watch uh, videos and things. I mean, you could put on a wishbone on there and they could watch it just like their other uh, videos that they like to watch. So it's kind of baffling to me that more people don't take advantage of that because I think these age really well. I, I think because they look like if you were to do wishbone today, it would look the same. I mean, it would be real life people and the dog acting in real life scenes, in these sort of play acting type classic scenes, it would be the same show.
1: Well, I mean, we're just hitting that point of, and I don't know how much of it is our age versus, you know, what you've talked about with the disintegration of the monoculture, where in terms of old TV shows, not so much, because generally I don't like watching TV shows with my kids. Movies for sure, though. I mean, I haven't, I don't almost ever watch new movies with them unless I pre-screen it just to make sure that, everything's fine. I I just go back to the classics because they're better. I mean, they're just better. Like, you know, they're going to do remakes that are just worse. And maybe that's how older generations think of like, Oh, the mummy remade. Oh, the original was better. But I think like our generation is probably the first where there's like definitively a better culture. Like there's definitively better TV shows, better movies. Like the remakes just don't cut it. I mean, even something like, like Lord of the Rings with Hobbit coming out, Hobbit like didn't even shed anything against Lord of the Rings. And you just go down the list of movies coming out now, and it's just like, the CGI is just worse. And so much earlier than that, you had restrictions with a lack of CGI, maybe lighting and camera quality and and things of that nature that newer movies would just look better and feel better. And maybe even the writing was better, but at least look and feel better. Whereas now they've overdone it. It's to the point where it's not better. It's just objectively worse, even in terms of the visuals, let alone the value and the screenwriting and everything and a lot of them are just lazy like lack of creativity is so bad i mean it's just they don't even try anymore it feels one thing that i will say is
0: that there is an article that was written about two years ago it's called the oral history of wishbone and it was written by a texas newspaper because that's where it was filmed back in texas and if you want to read it you can just search for it online Shout out to the actress that plays Sam because her name, Christy Abbott, if you find Christy Abbott on Instagram, she just has a regular old account and she has linked in there the article so you can click on it in her bio. And basically, it just is interviews with people, including her and the makers of the show, uh, Larry Brantley, who, who did the, the voice of Wishbone and all, all these different people. And they just talk about their memories of the show. They kind of talk about its history. At the end of the article, they claim that there is a Wishbone movie, possibly, in the works. But I haven't heard anything about it since the two years ago. So I'm not sure if it's still happening. I don't know if maybe the pandemic ruined it or something because this article was back from 2020. It could happen again in some capacity. We'll have to wait and see. If it does, I'm not sure how I'll feel about it. Honestly, I think your best bet is go back and watch the, the old episodes. I mean, there are like 50 episodes plus a couple of TV movies that they made.
1: A movie, I just don't trust anybody with it. They're going to CGI Wishbone right off the bat, and I'll just be done with it. Like, I'm not dealing with that stuff. You
0: no, know, it has to be 100% live action or else it's might as well not be made. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up here, but before we finish, we're going to go through our rating, our personal rating of the episode here. Now, you can go to IMDB and see the rating there. It's a little bit of a strange circumstance because there's hardly any votes. There are about 20 votes on the episode. If our listeners all went on there and voted, we could wildly swing the, uh, the number. But as of now, uh, of those 20 votes, it's rated as an 8.9. Which I think is really good. That on our scale of our sort of grade school rating is a B plus almost an A minus. And so for me, this one is super nostalgic, super memorable, and I can find little fault with it other than maybe some of the things with some of the not as great choreography, that kind of stuff. But this one really brings the fuels for me. You know what? Ten out of ten. This is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Wishbone episodes, rivaled maybe by The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was a little bit of a bigger production. But as to regular episodes, I don't think it gets much better than this, really.
1: I don't have a ton of nostalgia with it, but definitely a great episode in terms of the morals and the parallels. The costuming is brilliant. They really captured Robin Hood pretty well. I mean honestly, I'd probably agree with you it'd be perfect if not just for the the one tournament scene which I just couldn't wrap my head around understanding it. I mean I think I think at 8.9 is probably. I give it like a 9.0. I think it's a minus range. Um those were just you know the few flaws I noticed. But obviously when I'm doing a critique I'm going to find whatever I can that's wrong with it and I'm sure if we had the directors on they'd say oh here's the point of the scene or we had to cut this for this reason and that's why this doesn't make sense for reasons x, y or z but yeah, I mean, they captured the time period really well, and they, that parallel was so good, and the morals are just, I love them. And the mom especially just you know comes in with some of these chilling words of support for her child, and I'm always going to love that. Yeah,
0: definitely Ellen with some MVP action there at the end of the episode, saving Joe when he needs it, supporting him and everything. And yeah, this is just a, a fantastic episode. I think 9.0 is a good score for, especially if you don't have... You know, as much of nostalgia for it, I think that's a very fair rating. One last thought, there were also Wishbone books. So if you are curious, you can find those on eBay, on Amazon maybe, and maybe that's another way to get your kids reading some classic literature. They are just like the show except in book form. So I definitely read a ton of those as a kid and give them a try. Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at The Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to weekly posts, the Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode, when we return to the 1990s.